1: Welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. This is an Australian award-winning podcast where we normally look at news and politics of the week that's just occurred. And there's normally a group of privileged, white, cis-gendered males who solve the problems of the world. But we've got a special episode for you on this occasion. And uh, what's prompted me to do this is I was listening to an episode of a program produced by the ABC called God Forbid and that comes out as a podcast and on it they had a panel of speakers talking about religious uh, freedom in Australia and the program I was getting incredibly frustrated with as I was listening to it because the arguments I felt that should have been made were not being made and I thought that there was unfair treatment of the secular view in that podcast and so... Uh, as I'm sitting there listening to it and and screaming back at the, uh, well, not screaming, but thinking to myself, this just isn't right, I thought what I'd do is I would play the pertinent parts of that um, episode of God Forbid and interject uh, and give the arguments that I felt were missing and that should have been said, and, you know, it's for two reasons. Uh, one is to get it off my chest so I feel better, nothing like a good rant to... Uh, To calm you down. (laughs) And also, for the secular activists out there who might be interviewed or or are in these sorts of discussions, uh, to give some ideas of the sorts of things that you can say and that should be said. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to play excerpts from the God Forbid um, podcast. And uh, it's not the entire thing, I'm just playing bits as required. If I've edited bits, I'll put a little scratch signal to, to indicate that it doesn't necessarily flow on from a previous part, and um, you know we'll see how it goes. So sit back. This is one for the true believers and those who normally listen to the podcast, or if you're new to this podcast, this is not a normal episode by any means, and, and look at episode you know, 185 or 186 for a, a typical version of what we do, and uh, so this is one is, is certainly not in that category. But hopefully the true believers will get something out of it and uh, for others, hey, there's no compulsion. You don't have to hang in for the whole thing there. So uh, we'll be back to a normal program for next week. So here we go with the beginning of uh, the program and I'll be interjecting as I see fit. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to
0: the first episode of God Forbid for 2019 and it will be a big year for religion religion. And politics. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison hopes to introduce and campaign on Australia's first ever Commonwealth Religious Discrimination Act. And he promised to implement its central recommendation a new Religious Discrimination Act. There is no
2: more fundamental liberty that any human being has than their fundamental right to decide what they believe or not believe to have a religious faith or not to have a religious faith. Now, the protections that we intend to introduce, they're not about protecting any religious
1: institution. They're not about protecting any individual religion. In fact, they're not about those religions. It's about protecting Australians' right to
2: believe in what they want to believe.
1: Okay, so at this point, Scott Morrison is partly correct. Correct in the initial part where he said that you know, there's no more fundamental right than to decide what uh, people want to believe or not believe or to have a faith or not have a faith. So that's perfectly true. That's a fundamental right that everybody has and no arguments there. But in the second part of that statement, he said that the laws that they're proposing to introduce are not about protecting religious institutions and that's plainly false and we'll come back to that Uh, later in this podcast on many occasions. But the first part, yes, you've got a right to believe whatever you like, um, but he's totally incorrect in saying that the laws being introduced have nothing to do with protecting religious institutions.
0: The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, himself a Pentecostal Christian, announcing his intention to introduce a Religious Discrimination Act. So is this about protecting people from religious discrimination or enabling discrimination in the name of religion? Do Australians need protection to believe or not believe or do we have it already? Different views ahead from our God Forbid panel. And now to our God Forbid panel. Dr Renee Barker lectures in law at the University of Western Australia. She's the author of State and Religion, the Australian Story. And she's also an Anglican who advises the Bunbury Diocese on civil law. From our Perth studio, Renee Barker, welcome to God Forbid.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: In our Melbourne studio, we have Luke Beck. He's an Associate Professor of Constitutional Law at Monash University. His latest book is Religious Freedom and the Australian Constitution. He's an atheist, a fellow of the Rationalist Society, and an ambassador for the National Secular Lobby. Luke Beck, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you for having me. And in our Sydney studio, we have the Right Reverend Robert Forsyth. For 15 years, the Anglican Bishop of South Sydney, now... He's Senior Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies. His latest research paper, A Test of Maturity, The Liberal Case for Action on Religious Freedom. Robert
1: Forsyth, welcome to God for being. Thanks for having me, James. Great to be here. So here's the first problem. We've got uh, two people against one. We've got Renee Barker and the Right Reverend Robert Forsyth, who clearly have an interest in promoting um, special religious privileges as being a good idea. And on the other side, we've got Dr. Luke Beck, who's promoting the secular viewpoint. So throughout the entire episode, if equal time is given to each speaker, we simply have a case where two-thirds is going to be promoting one line of view and one-third of the time is going to be spent promoting the other line. And, And more than just a time issue, there'll be parts where Luke actually makes some good points and uh, Robert Forsyth struggles to answer those. But Renee Barker comes in and saves him. So having a sort of a tag team, if you've ever watched, you know, it's, it's like watching one of those wrestling matches on television uh, where you know, two against one and they just keep tagging and, and they can, you know, create mayhem for poor Luke. So why? Why was there a need to have two people on one side and only one on the other? it just shows an immediate bias and, you know, somebody in Luke's position can start to sound shrill when they're having to object to both people. Uh, if it was just a one against one, that would have been so much better. So uh, we'll talk about how that, and it'll be illustrated later on in the podcast, but, you know, a debate about religious freedom, uh, for and against, yet we've got uh, two people who are very much for uh, their version of religious freedom, which includes special privileges, and only one voice against. It, it's flawed from the very beginning. So first of all, a simple question to you all. Is the freedom to
0: have a religious belief, or not to, and to live by that belief or disbelief, a fundamental human right? Reverend Forsyth, Yes. Dr Barker? Yes. Professor Beck? Yes, Absolutely. And that's, God forbid, for this
3: week. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be Be nice if it was that simple. simple.
0: (laughs) Well, let's look at the follow-up question then. From what the Prime Minister said, Australia has a reputation for religious freedom, one of the freest countries in the world. Is that legally true?
1: And there we go. The most critical question, the most crucial part of this whole debate is skipped over in a matter of five or ten seconds and we're then on to a follow-up question. I can't believe that was allowed to slide through. So the question from James Carlton was, is the freedom to have a religious belief or not to have um, and to live by that belief or disbelief a fundamental human right? Now, all of the panellists agreed, and I have to say I'm disappointed with Luke's response on that one. So to give James Carlton credit, he he split up his question to highlight an important distinction, which unfortunately uh, Luke did not pick up on. And the first part of his question was, is the freedom to have a religious belief a fundamental human right? And then almost secondly, is um, the freedom to live by that belief a fundamental right? And they're two different things. So... The first one is the freedom to have a religious belief. That means just to, in your mind, believe something about religion, to have a religious belief, to believe in a God of whatever sort you want. Of course, that is a fundamental human right. And look, even if it wasn't, what can anybody do about it? I mean, what you think in your own mind about whether there's a God or not really, uh, you know, the state or the most powerful corporations in the world can't do much about. So what you think about uh, is a fundamental human right and, and there's nothing happening in Australia that would impinge on somebody's ability to hold in their own mind a religious belief. The second part of that, though, is uh, the freedom to live by that belief or disbelief. Is that a fundamental human right and by that we're getting into the area of when he says to live by that belief we're really meaning the freedom to practice that belief through actions and words and deeds and behavior that's what I think he's meaning by it when he says the freedom to live by that belief that is take that belief and then carry out actions make statements do things in furtherance of a belief and at that uh, that's the point where Luke or another, the second missing secular panellist should have or would have said well James, the first part of your statement, yes, it's fundamental human right, but that second one about being able to practice your faith that's not fundamental and We need to draw a distinction between the two. Now, at that point, I would have expected that Dr. Rene Barker and the Right Reverend Robert Forsyth would have said, what do you mean it's not fundamental? And, look, I'm not a big one on the United Nations uh, human rights uh, sort of provisions, but in this argument, you could rely on it because i'll quote I'll read here a little bit from Article eighteen of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and what it says is in uh, article eighteen uh, section one and I'll just paraphrase but it basically says everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, which shall include uh, freedom to have a belief of choice and freedom to manifest a religious belief, observance, practice and teaching. But in subsection 3 it says, The freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary to protect public safety, order, health or morals, or the fundamental rights and freedoms of others. So, where paragraph one says everyone's got the right to believe in a religion and to manifest that belief in practicing their religion, the third paragraph said, you know that bit about manifesting one's religious or belief. Well, sometimes that may be subject to limitations as are prescribed by law and as are necessary to protect public safety or to health or morals or the rights and freedoms of others. So that ability to practice one's belief is not fundamental. It's actually subject to other rights and freedoms that other people might have. And that's a crucially important distinction that needs to be made And the fact that there could be an hour-long podcast talking about religious freedom that doesn't make that distinction uh, simply uh, boggles my mind. Now, to illustrate um, by example what's meant by this, I like to use an example that comes out of the United States. And over there what happened was a case where there was a a Native American tribe who had spiritual beliefs and... uh, Nobody argued that they could hold their spiritual beliefs. But part of their religious practice was that they liked to smoke a particular drug called peyote, and that was an illegal substance under the uh, general laws of of the land. And so the question was, uh, could uh, the Native American tribe practice their religion religious faith, could they manifest it by smoking this uh, peyote drug, uh, even though that was against the general laws, because to stop them would be interfering with their religious freedom. And the court in that case made it very clear that it's one thing to have a religious belief, it's another thing to have a practice, and that the state, meaning the government, must always have the ability to pass laws and enforce them which might actually restrict somebody's ability to practise a religious belief. And that granting of exceptions to religious groups just because they hold a belief was not something that government should do. And this came from a, a very conservative court and you know the leading judgment was from... Uh, Antonin Scalia, who was a sort of a noted conservative, and uh, he was quoting an earlier case, but the statement that really rings true is, "'Laws, we said, are made for the government of actions, "'and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief "'and opinions, they may with practices. "'Can a man excuse his practices to the contrary "'because of his religious belief?' To permit this would be to make the professed doctrines of religious belief superior to the law of the land and, in effect, to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. So that's the the problem. And keep that in mind as we delve further into the issues in this podcast. Well, let's look at the (laughs) follow-up question then. From what the Prime Minister said,
0: Australia has a reputation for religious freedom, one of the freest countries in the world. Is that legally true, Professor Luke Beck?
4: It's legally true, and it's practically true. The Ruddock report—they looked high and low for actual, concrete examples of interference with religious freedom—and the Ruddock panel was unable to find any actual, concrete examples of people's religious freedom being interfered with in any meaningful way. Doctor Renee Barker, your view on this? So the question was:
1: Australia has a reputation for religious freedom. Is that legally true? And um, Luke says that, yes, it is true, and the Ruddock panel couldn't find any. Well, he's right that the Ruddock panel couldn't find any, but he's wrong that there is religious freedom in Australia. What Luke, I think, was thinking of was, are there restrictions against religious people from... Uh, properly holding their faith and the answer is no but what he failed to think about was what are the restrictions on people who do not have a faith from from holding their belief are there any legal um are there any laws in place in australia which discriminate against people because they don't have a faith if he had thought of that then I'm sure he could have given several examples where our reputation for religious freedom is actually in tatters. The most obvious example would be the school chaplaincy program. So that program uh, provides funding from the federal government to schools to uh, assist with a chaplain to be embedded in the school. And the terms of their work... um, Description. their job description, uh, are such that they are unable to... Pro- they're specifically prohibited from proselytising a faith in their role as a chaplain. So uh, completely prohibited from promoting a faith. But only people who are associated with a religious organisation can be employed as a school chaplain. So if you are not religious, and you do not wish to be part of a religious group, you cannot be employed as a school chaplain. So there is the most obvious example of a restriction of religious freedom. It's a restriction against people or a restriction on people who don't have faith. Now, the uh, Howard government uh, brought that in in that sort of format. Uh, Gillard, when she was in power made it open for non-religious people to be chaplains, and Abbott, when he got into power, reversed that and converted it back to a situation where people had to be part of a religious group in order to get a job as a school chaplain. And that's just the most obvious example of discrimination against the non-religious, and it's being performed clearly by the federal government. And one of the things to come out of this whole Ruddock report will be if the act that is mentioned later on in this episode eventually comes into being, it will probably mean that something like that program will uh, have to change back to what it was under the Gillard years. So that, that's example number one, which which had to be mentioned but wasn't, and I just did a quick search on the, uh, the Ruddock report, a word search on the word chaplaincy, and it doesn't appear at all except... Uh, One of the groups, the National School Chaplaincy Association, um, was consulted as part of the report, but no mention of school chaplaincy in the entire um, Ruddock report of over 100 pages. So uh, that tells you something about, about that report. Now, something that was mentioned in the Ruddock report, which again is a clear breach of religious freedom, and that's... The freedom to not have a religion was the myriad of laws in the various states uh, dealing with employment in religious schools and also dealing with enrolment of students. And without going into all the details, which will be dealt with a little bit later, you know, essentially the report spent a lot of time talking about the exceptions that are granted to religious bodies to discriminate against people essentially because they aren't following the tenets of a particular religious belief that's in control of of the school. So those, again, are clear examples where there are legal provisions in place discriminating against people because they don't have a faith. And when you consider... Uh, something like fifty percent of high school students now are are educated in in private religious schools. If you are a a you know a high school maths teacher, then you know fifty percent of the industry uh, is not open to you. Uh, if you want to be openly practicing uh, your lack of faith, because you'll get into big trouble in these schools, or potentially um, because of. Uh, your failure to comply with their tenets. So uh, so really, there's no way that should have been allowed to slip through as, as oh, you know, everything's hunky-dory in Australia in terms of religious freedom. Uh, yes, it's fine if you are wanting to practise your religion. You've got <laughs> all sorts of opportunities and uh, no restrictions. The problem is for the people who don't have faith, and that should have been mentioned.
3: I think it's a very subtle question because from a worldwide perspective, do we have religious freedom from a legal perspective compared to many other countries? Yes. From people's lived experiences? Yes. But there are individual cases, small little niggles that are making that a slightly blurrier yes.
0: And Reverend Robert Forsyth, do you think it reaches the point that the Prime Minister fears potentially religious persecution in this country? That
2: is very much a problem in places like Pakistan and in the Middle East. There is real persecution. And in China, there may be a situation in this country when, with the overzealous use of anti-discrimination laws and things like that, may interfere with the rights of religious communities to order their affairs such that it threatens their existence. That's theoretically possible. Dr. Renee Barker,
0: your view on this?
3: One of the points I'd pick up on that Robert made is that if when you compare ourselves to Pakistan, to China, we look very, very, very good. People can walk down the street without any fear that they are going to be pulled off the street by the secret police or anything even vaguely approaching that. But we shouldn't be a race to the bottom. Let's not look at the worst case examples and compare ourselves. Instead, what we should be aiming to do is hold ourselves up as a world leader. How can we really make sure that freedom of religion and all other human rights are protected here to the very best standard. Persecution is the wrong word. Yes. I was thought it was an unfortunate use of a, a term by the Prime Minister because it that put people, the focus in the wrong place.
2: did say that people said that to him, that they were worried about True. But I think his reaction was taking what was a fear and suggesting that it's likely, which I don't yeah. think it is at the moment. Which is very poor leadership on you. the Prime
4: Minister's part. If people come to the Prime Minister and say, I fear that I'm facing religious persecution on the streets of Australia... Proper leadership would be for a Prime Minister or any other political leader to explain, well, no, you don't. What you face in Australia does not come anywhere near religious persecution. Politicians stoking people's fears for political advantage, who would have thought of it?
2: Exactly. (laughs) I I want to give two cheers to to the Radic Review. One is they got 16,000 submissions, which was a massive amount and shows something about this issue in our society. They then got the report together quickly and did a good job and they're very eminent people.
1: Well, let's just uh, pause right there and ask the question, who was on the Ruddock panel, and was that a fair and balanced cross-section of all stakeholders on this issue? The panel members were Philip Ruddock, Emeritus Professor Rosalind Croucher, the Honourable Dr Annabelle Bennett, Father Frank Brennan, and Professor Dr Nicholas Aroney. Let's start with Philip Ruddock given that the, the, the inquiry was set up to satisfy the rumblings of the right wing of the Liberal Party who were so upset that the marriage equality um, changes had been made that they demanded this inquiry into religious freedom. You know, the, the whole genesis of this inquiry was a result of marriage equality. And who do we get to chair the panel but Philip Ruddock, who as Attorney-General was the very man who introduced uh, in 2004 a marriage legislation amendment bill to prevent any possible court rulings that would allow same-sex marriages or civil unions. So he already had uh, an, a rusted-on view of marriage and marriage equality, which given the importance of that issue to the whole debate, really made him ineligible from the start. Uh, Professor Aroni, prior to the uh, panel, he was on the record as saying, the right of individuals to formulate and articulate their beliefs and to act upon their consciences and to associate with fellow believers is fundamental to a free society. If religious freedom is restricted to an individual's right to believe with no right to practice one's belief, then it does not amount to very much at all. So he had a stated position very much in favour of promoting ability of religious people to practice their religious faith and not just believe in it. Also on the panel was Father Frank Brennan. He's on the record as saying that Catholic priests who, through the confessional, hear uh, about incidents of child sexual abuse uh, should not be compelled under the general law to break the seal of the confessional and report the abuse to the police. So he has a clear idea in his mind that uh, religious practice is above the general law. I couldn't find anything against uh, Emeritus Professor Rosalind Croucher or the Honourable Dr Annabelle Bennett, and it seems to me that they're perfectly um, normal appointments for this sort of thing, but I make the point that with, in particular, Father Frank Brennan on this panel, uh, and with Dr Aroney's comments, wh- where was the, sec- the pro-secular voice? If, if you're going to have somebody on the panel who, in the case of Father Frank Brennan, is clearly going to be in favour of extending religious privilege where was the person who was clearly going to be in not extending religious privilege? Where was the balance?
2: I think the weakness
1: about it was their very
2: hard-nosed empirical approach, looking for evidence, because those who are concerned that the coming of marriage equality may lead to problems cannot be dealt with by a review that says, well, we see no evidence within three months. It's the concern about the trend, and it doesn't solve the question of is there a dangerous bend going on here that may need to be looked at?
4: I don't think that's necessarily a very fair characterization. The premise of those comments seems to be that if gay people are allowed to get married, in other words, if people are allowed to live their lives in a way that they want, that's somehow a threat to somebody else's religious freedom... It's not a threat or a harm to anybody's religious freedom just because somebody else lives their life in a way that you don't like.
2: I agree entirely. That's not the fear. The fear is people preventing others who conscientiously disagree that that is a way of life that should be lived from being able to exist in the public sphere as communities and institutions. The freedom to get married in itself has no implications. It's those who then want to build around that freedom ways of shutting other people up uh, who are disagreeing with it. And that's the danger.
1: Well, the danger is that... We've decided to make some laws about equal treatment of people and marriage equality and an expectation that members of our society generally will comply with those laws and that we will enforce those laws. The danger that he's talking about is the danger that religious groups will be forced to comply with generally applicable laws.
0: Reverend Forsyth, given what we've been hearing... Do you support, in principle, the Morrison government's plan to introduce a Religious Discrimination Act? I'm really in two minds about it, actually.
2: I'm, I'm very cautious about anti-discrimination law in all its forms. I know we have to have some of it, but we, I, I'm, I'm fearful it may cause more trouble than it's worth, and that's the danger with these things because when you have discrimination acts, you've got to then have exemptions to discrimination acts. And I discriminate on the basis of religion regularly in my church leadership, not elsewhere, uh, who we allow to do this and do that. The act would therefore have to say that's okay. And so when you have discrimination acts, you've always got to carve out exemptions, which creates the problem we've got now, where because there are exemptions, people get all anxious and we have that moral panic, and the thought is somehow religious organisations or others using the exemptions are getting away with something that otherwise would be illegal. So I'm frankly not that excited
1: about it. That's a clever approach from uh, the Right Reverend Robert Forsyth because he's looked at the experience of the release of the Ruddock report and seen what has happened. Uh, essentially, if you'll remember, dear listener, that the report was leaked and uh, the recommendations came out that in certain circumstances, religious schools could uh, refuse to enroll students and in certain circumstances, refuse to employ teachers. And when that was actually publicised in the papers, the community said, what What do you mean they that's a recommendation? And the Prime Minister came out and said, well, that's already the law. That's just existing law. That's just confirming ex- existing law. And the community was quite rightly outraged when they learnt of these laws and said, well, If that's the law, then we don't like it. We don't like these exemptions. We think they're inappropriate and unfair and we're not going to cop it. So by bringing about a Religious Discrimination Act that will open up a debate where these arcane, obscure, unfair, ugly, discriminatory laws will come out onto the front pages of the paper and people will become aware of them and object to them and so... Uh, Robert Forsyth is right to be concerned about uh, a Religious Discrimination Act merely for the publicising of existing privileges and special exemptions.
0: Luke Beck, federally we have an Age Discrimination Act, a Disability Discrimination Act, a Racial Discrimination Act and a Sex Discrimination Act, but we don't yet have a National Religious Discrimination Act. Is that the final missing
1: piece in the human rights puzzle? this is an area where an important distinction needs to be made and i never hear it being made in australia so he just listed their age disability racial and sexual uh, characteristics where there are discrimination acts and asking whether religion should be you know added into that to to finalize the mix but uh, I made a big point about this in episode 170 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, so for a full uh, rundown on this idea, check out that episode. But essentially, we need to make distinctions between different characteristics. So characteristics such as skin colour, gender, age, uh, sexual preference, these are innate characteristics that people have. Others, such as, political or religious belief are acquired or maintained by our choices and rely on values and ideological content so you've got no choice when it comes to age disability race sex and sexual preference but you do have a choice when it comes to religion and politics and economics and any other theory that you want to hold in your head so Again, this uh, it's useful to look at an example. If we take, for example, um, Margaret Thatcher. So clearly we could criticise her for her neoliberal political beliefs, but we couldn't criticise her for being a woman. Can you see the difference? One is an innate characteristic that she held, that she had no choice over, and the other is is an idea, is, has got ideological content in it. So, my submission is that things like age, disability, race, sex, these are things where people have no choice, and protecting people from discrimination uh, for those characteristics in the hierarchy of rights, uh, those rights rank much higher than religious belief which is just another ideology for the for the believers out there you may be surprised to know that you know the atheists amongst us just consider religious belief to be akin to a political or an economic belief it's got as much validity so you know should you be discriminated against for being a communist for being a neoliberal for being a marxist uh, it's the same as the same question is whether you should be discriminated against for your um, religious ideology. It's just ideas. It ranks well below uh, those key characteristics that James Carlton mentioned. So, in the event of a conflict, which is what invariably occurs with rights, so if somebody has a sexual characteristic which is innate and there is a conflict between their rights and somebody who is holding a religious belief, which is ideological, then we must fall in favour of the person who has the innate characteristic. And in the, in the battle of, of rights, those are more fundamental than
4: religious ones. Perhaps, perhaps not. The, the principle is that, number one, nobody should be discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. And secondly, and equally. Nobody should be allowed to use their religious beliefs as a license to discriminate against others. So, sure, let's have a federal Religious Discrimination Act like we have bans on religious discrimination in most states. But let's make sure we don't use that act to allow people to discriminate against other people because they have some sort of religious motivation for treating other people poorly. So, should we have a Religious Discrimination Act? Well, it depends on what it says.
1: Look, ultimately, we shouldn't discriminate against people unfairly just because they're part of any particular group, whether they're part of a religious group, uh, an, an economic group, a political group, or a squash club, or a tennis club group. Like, why not have an act that just says we shall not unfairly discriminate against people because they happen to be members of groups? There's no special reason why religion get something that these other ideological groups don't get. It's not special. And, Renee Barker, we haven't seen the precise drafting, but the
0: government has given an indication that it will broadly conform to existing discrimination legislation. Do you support a Religious Discrimination Act?
3: I do, as a Religious Discrimination Act modelled on the Racial Discrimination Act. And one of the reasons I think that is at the moment when we talk about religion and discrimination, we're always talking about exemptions. Religions are getting an exemption. Religions are getting special treatment. Religions are being allowed to behave in a way that would otherwise be illegal if they weren't religions.
1: We talk about it because it is unfair. Homo sapiens are keenly attuned to unfair situations and... These are special exemptions, special privileges, things that religions are getting as a special treat, which they don't deserve. It's unfair, and people do see it. That's why they talk about it.
3: And I think having a Religious Discrimination app will flip that rather than what the focus is today in the the discussion with religion is on the right of religious people or religious organisations, more precisely, to discriminate. And I think that's an unfortunate negative understanding about freedom of religion and discrimination involving religions. So I think it would be a very good idea.
0: Renee Barker, Australians are becoming less religious at a rapid rate and our views about gender and sexuality and morality have been transformed in all of our lifetimes. What does this mean for religious freedom?
3: What it means is we need to be careful and go steady, steady. It is very tempting that when things are changing rapidly, to change the law rapidly to to fit with what's happening and to throw out things we don't think we need at the moment. Uh, Marie Kondo's Netflix show, Tidying Up, has sort of swept the internet with this craze of people throwing out things that no longer spark them joy. And I can certainly think of a few Australian laws I'd like to see thrown out because they do not spark me joy. Religions have a lot to atone for in the way in which they have treated LGBTI people and their families and supporters. But in making sure our laws don't continue to perpetuate marginalisation and discrimination against these individuals, we need to make sure we don't at the same time swing too far the other way.
0: Robert Forsyth, you recently wrote that identity politics is weaponising victimhood and grievance. A minority is determined to take offence at slights perceived more than real and use the pulpit of outrage to impose a new and intolerant orthodoxy. That's the danger. Could that criticism be levelled at you? I hope not. It's very important that we we have good faith in this battle. You're a conservative Christian in an increasingly irreligious country, and you're outraged that your views on marriage and morality and sexuality are shared by a small minority that's getting smaller. Don't you consider yourself a victim in this? Your identity and identity politics, well, you're the yes, victim. Yes, but I, I suppose so. But I'm not, I'm,
2: not, I'm not going to go out trying to use the law to stop people criticising me or thinking I'm an idiot or saying I'm an idiot if they want to say that they can. The trouble we've got is this, James. There's been a sexual revolution in the last 50 years and particularly with marriage equality, that's kind of brought to a very important moment. But there remains in the society, and will remain, I think, forever in the society, what I call recalcitrant minorities. Irreconcilable difference that will not, not be go away. Absolutely, not go away. There's no way it's going to go away. My own religion, the Christian religion, we had this fight with the Romans and the Greeks when we started on, the, on these very issues, In matter of fact, and we maintained a distinctive Christian ethic about marriage and sex to this day. And there's no reason if another 2,000 years last, we're not going to change.
1: Listening to um, the right Reverend Robert Forsyth there, you would be under the impression that millions of Christians around the world uh, all think the same about marriage and sex and marriage equality. Uh, clearly, there's a spectrum of views. And to say that you know Christianity has held this view for thousands of years and will continue to hold it unchanged just is a joke. I mean, there's just millions of Christians who hold a completely different view to uh, Robert Forsyth and will continue to. So it's not like it's been this rigid, rock-solid view that's unchanged. It's it's already changed. It'll continue to change. And you really should think twice before purporting to speak on behalf of, of millions of other Christians as to what their precise views are. And therefore we have got to find... How can we live as as a mature society with those
2: irreconcilable differences in a way that really is good for everybody? And that, I think, is the great challenge, not weaponising laws, finding a peace together. That's the need now. We've had had the, the marriage equality war, if you want to say it. Now we've got to find out how to make the
1: peace long term, not winner takes all. Yes, we had a war and your side lost that war. Luke Beck,
0: where do you see the balance being drawn between the two?
4: I think there's an element of unreality. Nobody is giving any actual concrete examples. In Australia, discrimination on the ground of religion is already unlawful in most states and has been unlawful for some decades. But not all. Not all. all. But not all. Not New South Wales
3: and not South Australia. Not
4: all. And that's a gap that needs to be... Filled, But, of course, as Ruddick pointed out, there are very few, if indeed any, cases of religious discrimination actually happening. The second point is that just because there are gay people and there are trans people, etc., there have always been gay people, there have always been trans people since day dot. Just because they're now coming out of the closet and no longer hiding who they are, that doesn't mean that that other people's religious freedom is being interfered with just because somebody else exists in a way that you don't like – Frankly, that's not any of your business. I, I agree entirely. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. We religious people have the fear that
2: if we teach what we believe to be true, we'll be accused and, then, and legislated against So
4: we should discriminating. pass the law in response to your fear rather than any actual no,
2: no. problem? What Archbishop Porte has got into trouble with in Tasmania, he sent out a letter to um, his diocese spelling out the Catholic view of marriage, which one person thought was demeaning to her particular sexuality and took him to a tribunal.
4: That's that's not a real case. That was a vexatious complaint that was withdrawn because it had no merit.
3: Perhaps if I could interject here.
1: This is a point where the two against one dynamic works against Luke. So uh, Luke made a good point. Uh, Robert Forsyth was stopped in his tracks, but Dr Barker comes in to um, help him out. So a bit of a tag team happens, and this is part of the unfairness of... uh, the the ratio here on this panel?
3: The problem with that case is, no, it wasn't a case. It didn't go anywhere. The complaint was withdrawn, but it was costly. It was time consuming. It was distressing for both sides to be involved. And part of the problem here was, I don't think anyone really fully understood what the law was. The Catholic parties didn't know whether they what they had done was okay. They thought it was. The party bringing the complaint didn't fully comprehend if what they did was OK. But if you ask somebody on the street, do we have freedom of religion, they're most likely to quote me the First Amendment of the American Constitution. <laughs> There's a lack of understanding about what that actually means in the Australian context. But also to give a concrete example, the federal parliament, the Senate, passed rules, not law, a rule that temporarily restricted the wearing of facial coverings in their gallery in response to a rumour that somebody was going to protest about wearing facial coverings.
1: Note what's happening here. Uh, Robert Forsyth just introduced his own topic of the Tasmanian case that he wanted to make comments about. And now Dr Barker is introducing her own point that she wants to make about uh, religious garments. So um, skilled operators able to um, basically segue into their own Um, topics that they want to carry on with, these didn't originate from uh, the compare. And Luke, if you get another chance down the track, while you're in the middle of of objecting to what they've said, just segue into your own topic that you want to talk about, that you feel comfortable about, because you can do this sort of thing.
3: And in the process, they discriminated against a group of women who were already marginalised by excluding them from viewing the parliamentary process legally.
0: Yes, correct. And the Attorney-General himself cited that example, Christian Porter. He said that was an open and shut case of religious discrimination in the Federal Parliament that's now legal, which he wants to make illegal by way of his Religious Discrimination Act. And he cited other examples. Have a listen to those and then we'll come back
1: for some comment. We've got examples of Baptist care organisations in Queensland putting a view to their staff about how people should view marriage, just in the same way that Qantas did to its staff. And yet that Baptist care organisation executives are brought into proceedings at law in Queensland. Mm -hmm. There are examples of people having Facebook conversations with their work colleagues where they put a view in favour of traditional marriage being sacked. Mm -hmm. So this offers those people the same protection that they would
4: have if that discrimination had occurred based on their race or their sex or their gender. Luke Beck, does the Attorney-General make a case? Well, if somebody has been sacked because they express a religious view, then that's obviously wrong, and in most states that's already unlawful. So, Luke, in federal law, we have a suite of
0: anti-discrimination acts. Religious organisations are exempt from some
4: of them. How does that work? So generally speaking, a religious organisation, so this is not a private individual who happens to be religious, but a religious organisation such as a church or a religious charity or a church-run school or a church-run hospital, for example, they are generally speaking exempt from all of the federal anti-discrimination rules if the conduct they wish to engage in conforms to their religious beliefs, principles or tenets. But there's an exception. There is no exemption whatsoever in aged care. If you are a religious-run nursing home, you cannot discriminate against your residents or patients, regardless of what your religious beliefs are. But you can in schools and charities? And... But you can in schools, and chari- provided that it conforms to your religious beliefs or principles. And then there's a big but. Just because it might be allowed under federal law, it might, depending on what state you're in, be unlawful under state law.
0: And Luke, the Greens want those exemptions for religious organisations removed from our federal discrimination laws. You're a rank and file member of the Labor Party. What's Bill Shorten's position on this?
4: Well, I can't speak for the Labor Party. The Labor Party will speak for themselves. At the moment, there's a bill before the federal parliament introduced by the Labor Party that would remove exemptions in the case of schools, including religious schools, and essentially put schools in the same situation as nursing homes. So schools would not be allowed to discriminate against students in the same way that nursing homes are not allowed to discriminate against residents or patients, but just like nursing homes, nursing homes are allowed to discriminate against their staff if it conforms to the organisation's religious beliefs, and the Labor Bill would continue to allow schools, including religious schools, to discriminate against their staff if that conforms to the religious beliefs of the organisation.
0: So, Robert Forsyth, what that means in practice is a religious school can sack a teacher for being in a de facto relationship, can refuse to hire another teacher for being gay and can do the same to a teacher who might get divorced. If it conforms to the doctrine of that religion and religious sensibilities. Yes,
2: look, most religious schools are not religious. I mean, they're, they're church schools in a vague or sense. I call it the homeopathic method, just a little touch of something on the edge. And maybe they're concerned about their chaplain, but there are some schools, which I call intentional religious communities, where the parents and the organisation of the school, want to run not just an education institution, but a particular kind of intentional religious educational institution. For the law to say, for a member of the staff of that school to not walk the walk of the religion of that school in major ways would be inconsistent with the purpose of that school. And that's why I think it is right they've got the right to discipline or not hire those whose behaviour and beliefs is inconsistent with the particular purposes of that intentional read your school. Even if you think they're rubbish and it's all nonsense, I still think they need to have the right to do that for their
4: own sake. Luke Beck? Sure, so the position Robert just describes would be the effect of the legislation that's currently been introduced by the Federal Labor Party.
0: Do you support that?
4: Personally, no, and, well, it's yes and no. My view is if you are running a school with public money, you should comply with public rules. If you're running a school with your own private money, well, then, sure, do what you like.
1: Well, every private school gets some public money.
4: I've got a different view on that.
1: Here's where I have a major disagreement with Luke's position. Anti-discrimination laws are in place because of the unfairness for the victim... And because as a society, we need a cohesive, cooperative society where people get along. So, look, let's just think back to the, the, the bad old days of, of, you know, Alabama and racial discrimination and, you know, you, you can't hire a black person in a job. Now, that sort of discrimination everybody today says is just unfair and unwarranted and cannot be accepted. So the same here in Australia. If if a religious group said, look, we've got uh, a particular religious conviction that we just don't hire black people, well, it just wouldn't... There's no way that that would be uh, considered sufficient. So we can draw the line... At different points and say, no, we don't, we don't care in the least what your religious convictions or thoughts are, that, that form of discrimination is not acceptable because of the effect it has on the victim and because of the effect that it has on our society by dividing our society. And, you know, in that situation, if a religious group said, well, we're just a private religious group, we don't get any taxpayer money. And we still don't want to hire blacks. There is no way we would say, "Oh, gee, okay, well, if we're not paying you any government money, uh, go ahead and do it." Like the mere fact that we're paying uh, government money to these religious schools who want to discriminate on grounds of religious sort of practice is is not uh, the crucial part. It just adds extra salt into the wound. The, the crucial reason why we're saying you can't do that is because of the unfairness to the victim and the detrimental effect to our society by dividing our society. And the, we've weighed up the pros and cons, and overall it's, it's a danger and damaging to our society. The fact that we pay the money just adds salt into the wound. Now, Luke's going to get into great difficulty Uh, as this conversation continues, because he didn't draw a line there. Schools are going to be the hot point, because schools are the intersection of
2: family, state, religion... I make a distinction between two different kinds of government funding. If the government funds a a religious institution to do some work on behalf of the government, uh, run an employment service or something, the government can set the terms of those as much as it likes, as long as it doesn't impose rules upon the religious organisation that would threaten the religious nature of the organisation.
1: How's that work? The government can impose whatever rules it likes, provided those rules aren't such that would interfere with the purpose of the organisation where the purpose is determined by the organisation itself. For goodness sake.
2: But on the other hand, if the government is funding in order to allow diversity, not just provide a service, then the government ought not to be making the funds under conditions that would destroy the diversity. With education, the purpose of funding education is also to allow a diverse range of schools.
1: Complete BS. The purpose of funding schools is not about diversity. And... You know, earlier on, um, Robert Forsyth talked about identity politics, victimhood, and grievance, but now he's wandering over into the murky territory of of diversity, which is tied up with all of that. So, where he was poo pooing victimhood and grievance, he's he's now latching on to this life raft of of minority status of di- of diversity as as a reason for. That that's something the government should be promoting as a reason for funding schools. There's no diversity argument for funding schools. We actually need all of our kids together in the same school system so that, they, um, so that Muslim boys and girls meet Christian and Jewish and Hindu boys and girls and understand that they're just people and so when they become adults they're less likely to want to shoot each other. Like, the more our kids mix in their school system, the better. You know, diversity is a bad idea in our school system. We want a homogenous system with kids mixing and dividing our kids up into religious groups before they're even old enough to work out a religion for themselves is one of the great crimes of modern Australia.
2: And that's a different kind of purpose than just doing a government business, being outsourced to a religious
4: organisation. The religious schools are still required to comply with all the formalities of the state and federal-based curriculums. So the idea that there is this huge diversity in the nature of education being provided isn't the same. Their students sit the same HSC and VCE. Religious schools should be treated in the same way as religious nursing homes, that they should not be allowed to discriminate against their patients or students. And I don't think that religious-run nursing homes or schools that are operating with public funding and in most cases almost entirely with public funding should be allowed to discriminate against their staff either.
2: If that was true for many of them it would destroy their nature as a religious school or institution because by doing that you take away the one point at which they can select staff
1: according to the mores of their religion. And if that's the case and if they have to close down because they can't continue in the form that they want to then so be it. Too bad.
4: If they could source their own funding to run that sort of school, then good luck to sure, them, but, but the public shouldn't be subsidising. But this it. is our political view, which says the government should never fund religious
2: organisations. That's that's effectively what you said.
1: Well, he didn't say it, but I will say it. Uh, yes, the government should not fund private religious organisations. And, in fact, the Australian federal government did not provide a single cent to private religious schools from Federation, 1901, through to uh, about 1962, I believe, when uh, the Goulburn strike occurred. In that situation, there was a primary school in Goulburn. The toilet block was a mess. The government said, close down the school. And uh, I think it was Mother Celeste said, well, if I close down this school, I'm going to close down all seven schools Catholic schools in Goulburn, uh, which she did, and the government did not have enough time to uh, ramp up the uh, government schools and accommodate the children. So because of an extortion threat, uh, the government had to pay money to fix the toilet block. That then became a lever for the Menzies government to... uh, basically offer school funding to the Catholic sector as a means of buying votes, which uh, then Labor governments subsequently had to match, and we end up in the situation now where billions of dollars are given to Catholic schools and other private schools, um, all because of a decrepit uh, toilet block in Goulburn. Uh, Ironically enough, we now pay so much money to the Uh, private religious schools in Goulburn, that if we did shut them down and uh, use that money for government schools, we would only be faced with about an extra 1% payment. I mean, it's so close. The money that we're paying to these schools is so close to what we would pay if we were just uh, running government schools. It's not funny. The other thing is that... uh, the sort of funding of private schools in Australia is, is a little bit akin to the uh, the gun um, ownership debate in the USA. I mean, other countries look at the USA with their gun ownership and say, what are you doing? You're crazy. Why are you allowing these guns? And other countries look at our, our funding of private schools and think, you're crazy. What are you doing? So America... You know, hardly provides anything I think it's zero or close to for private schools. Uh, Canada is much less, New Zealand is much less. so uh, we're out of whack with with similar countries. so for us to say we're not providing money to private schools would not be um, would not be a a bad idea and B not unusual. Dr. Renee Barker, your view on this?
3: This debate is not new. And ultimately it comes down to that question, do we want religious organisations, religious institutions to be funded by the government at all? Because if the answer is no, then obviously we remove any money from any of them. But if the answer is yes, we can't say yes, but you can't be a religion.
4: I think that's, that's right. It's going to be one or the other, I think. That's the distinction. We already provide money to religious schools on conditions. We give money to religious schools on condition that the money is used only for education, that the school is not run for profit, that the school conforms to the state and national curriculums. Money to Absolutely. religious schools it's already comes with conditions.
2: No, no, Luke, the question is not the question of no conditions. No-one's arguing that. That's a straw man. The question is...
1: I'll interject here again. Um, he's not happy with uh, what he claims as a straw man argument by Luke. Now, a straw man is where you... Um, pretend to state the opponent's case but you state it in a false fashion um, which is easily knocked down like a straw man. So it's, it's a false representation of your opponent's case which you then uh, knock down like an easy straw man. So uh, he's not happy about what he's calling a straw man sort of um, uh, argument but later on in this podcast, he will be guilty of very much uh, himself making a straw man argument. Conditions which would threaten the religious nature of the school. That's the problem.
0: Well, curriculum could threaten the religious nature of the school.
1: In which case, the yes,
2: school shouldn't exist. Shouldn't if, if school wants to teach something which is contrary to science, I agree that they won't be able to exist.
1: Good on you, Robert Forsyth, for saying it. There are times and circumstances where... It might be best if a private religious school simply closes down. So why is the school compelled to
0: agree by a curriculum, but not social and uh, legal norms with respect to the we, hiring and firing of staff who happen to get because divorced? The
1: hu- happened. This, by the way, that's a straw man too. He really doesn't like straw man arguments, which will become a problem later on.
0: Well, it's not a straw man for the divorced teacher they who's don't been sacked. Get, where? Who? Speak, it can speak, be done. Speak to the Independent Education Union. They'll give you examples of members. But the question is,
2: are you going to impose a particular view of sexuality and sexual behaviour
4: upon publicly funded institutions in the society? That's the question. And, Luke, yes. should we or not? We should prohibit discrimination being subsidised by the taxpayer.
2: Please, just say yes. Which is the same as imposing the sexual revolution on all government-funded institutions.
1: Well, there's a straw man right there, simply saying that they should not discriminate against, uh, you know, gay couples or gay teachers uh, does not mean you're imposing the sexual revolution. I think the sexual revolution is, is more than that.
0: Luke, imposing the sexual revolution?
4: It's not a sexual revolution. Gay people, trans people have existed since day dot. There's nothing new about that.
0: That's
2: not the point I'm making. not where they exist. It's about whether sexual behaviour is morally approved or not.
1: That's the question. No, the question is whether religious groups should comply with laws that we have decided are for the benefit of our society and should be applicable generally across our society. Religious institutions can disapprove, that is, they can hold a moral belief, but we just want them to comply with our general laws.
4: So it's okay to be gay as long as you don't have sex? I'm saying that is what many religions happen to hold
1: who
2: don't believe marriage equality actually is marriage. That's the minority view which is going to be held for a long, long, long time in this society by significant religious communities.
4: And let them hold
2: that view? The question is, will you allow them to receive any funding for their schools as religious schools?
1: Not only will we not provide funding, but we just won't allow them to operate either. The, the funding's not the crucial question. It's whether it's good and a valid law, in which case it applies to everybody. Discrimination
2: should
4: not be subsidised by the taxpayer.
2: No, that's begging the question. That's begging selection. The trouble Selection with the
4: word, is a euphemism for, for discrimination. And
2: discrimination art. is a euphemism to imply that any discrimination is automatically wrong. They're loaded words. That's one of our problems. Selection good, discrimination bad... They both could be the same event seen from different points of view. We're using a phrase called persuasive definition, where you define the question to get your answer.
0: Marriage equality well, being a case in point, as distinct Exactly. From... I've used it out of respect, but I think well, it
2: was... Well,
4: discri- discrimination the is, the, is the term used in the legislation. So that's why I'm using the term, that's the legal terminology. I'm, you know, it's more than that. using legal terminology.
1: Honestly, you can hardly complain about loaded terms when you're using the words sexual revolution, imposing the sexual revolution in a discussion where we're simply asking religious bodies to conform with generally applicable laws to prevent unfair discrimination.
0: When Prime Minister Scott Morrison made his first speech to Parliament 11 years ago, he said Australia is not a secular country. He said we have freedom of religion, but not freedom from religion.
1: He's actually correct. As I was describing earlier, talking about the chaplaincy uh, laws, for example, we don't have uh, a secular country here, and there'll be other examples I'll give later, and we don't have freedom uh, from religion. So he's right we don't. The point is that we should. You are free to be secular, he said, but that's just one
0: belief system among many with no greater claim than any other.
1: Clearly he has no idea what secularism means. It's it's not a belief system. Secularism means that the state should not provide special privileges or allowances to religious belief in any way and shouldn't be involved in religion. It should allow people to hold religious beliefs but should not be facilitating the manifestation of those beliefs, nor unnecessarily interfering with uh, the holding of beliefs, even though that's impossible, or unnecessarily interfering with the manifestation if it's, if it's not hurting anybody else. So secularism is about uh, religious groups being self-funded, that they should be their own, private matters that people do in private, uh, that the state has no interest in. And sure, if they want to do it in public and hold a public rally, by all means, but in terms of actual promotion and assistance by the state, it shouldn't happen. That That's what a secular country looks like. And that is not only for the benefit of people who don't believe. It actually benefits believers of the minority religion, because invariably in countries what you find is that there is a a prevailing predominant religion, uh, Christianity in the West, but, you know, Islam in the Middle East, and in a secular country, it actually protects the minority uh, religions as much as it protects the non-believers.
0: Well, the national secular lobby disagrees with him completely. Their co-director is Brian Morris, the founder of Plain Reason and co-author of Sacred to Secular, Why a Corrupted Christianity Demands a Secular Solution.
5: I spoke to him from our Adelaide studio. Well, I'd have to say that that is really something of a distortion, a comment by Scott Morrison. I mean, becoming a secular nation is not just some arbitrary belief. It's really all about inclusive democracy, Secular countries are neutral to all beliefs and they don't impose any religious beliefs on the general public. And probably the best example of that, of course, are the Nordic countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway. And we have the alternative to all of that. The extreme opposite, of course, is theocracy. And I'm sure nobody really contemplates that.
0: In fact, you say Australia is becoming a soft theocracy.
5: What do you mean by that? Well, we do, and it's really fairly self-evident insofar as Australia is one of the most Christianised parliaments in the Western world. Only 12% of Australians attend church on a regular basis, but 25% for federal MPs and senators who regularly attend the fortnightly parliamentary prayers. But
0: if we elect religious MPs and senators, it's democratic to have those views reflected in the outcome.
1: Yes, it's democratic, but our problem is that our democratically elected leaders are presenting us with with laws that are not secular. That's the issue. It's not a lack of democracy. It's the fact that our democratic leaders are not grasping the importance of secular values.
5: Well, but it's uh, it's double the Australian average, so look, and some of the comments made by parliamentarians, and of course Scott Morrison himself in parliament only a year or so ago was trumpeting that he was on a crusade to protect Christianity, and he's not the only one, I mean it's not the sort of thing that you expect from democratic secular parliaments, but...
0: How exactly? Again, if Australians elect Christians, then they elect Christians. And in the same-sex marriage debate, Australians wanted same-sex marriage. Then in response, that parliament, with its Christians, voted to change the Marriage Act to allow same-sex marriage. Isn't that a secular democracy working?
1: I don't know what to make of James's motives here. He seems to be on the attack with Brian, far more so than with the uh, the panellists, but Yes, uh, the marriage equality debate and subsequent law was a successful example of secular democracy. The point is, um, we need more of that, is the point we're getting at. And the uh, problem is that our democracy is presenting us with a bunch of parliamentarians who aren't representative of average Australia, our current crop are far more religious than the average Australian and they consequently provide us normally with laws that are not secular and it was only because of the outrage and the public campaign that really forced the issue on this occasion on uh, many politicians who um, weren't real happy with having to provide a secular result of marriage equality.
5: Well, it's not really when you consider what really happened from that, that then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull encouraged his parliamentary colleagues to pass the same-sex marriage bill based on the fact that he would then implement the Ruddock Review to look at religious freedom. And it's really from there, the tortuous process that we then have with, uh, with Philip Ruddock then producing these... Uh, 20 recommendations. Uh, The original report wasn't released for, you know, almost a year. And now we have introduced, or we're going to have introduced into Parliament, presumably sometime after February this year, this new Religious Discrimination Act. Is that a bad thing,
0: to protect the freedom to be religious or to be not religious, a protection that doesn't currently exist in a standalone piece of federal law?
1: Again, I'm just wary of James's line here. He's painted a very attractive picture of a racial discrimination act that we have no knowledge of. Just, it seemed to me to be an antagonistic approach to Brian that didn't occur with the other panellists.
5: There are no laws in Australia that limit the right to religious freedom anyway.
0: But it's not about limiting the ability of governments to discriminate. Isn't it about limiting the ability of people to discriminate, a protection that does not fully exist across Australia? It's a patchwork collection of protections.
5: We don't know what the, the entire bill is. It seems that from the Ruddock recommendations that it will also codify all the exemptions for religious organisations to, in fact, discriminate against... LGBTI people uh, against people who don't hold their same religious belief in uh, a whole range of religious institutions, uh, religious private schools, hospitals, uh, you know, welfare organisations and what have you. In the 21st century, it's just not on. It's unconscionable.
0: If you want politicians to leave their religion at home when they go to work, and I mean politicians in the broadest sense... Players in the public sphere, wouldn't that in a way be like asking Martin Luther King to keep his Christianity private or Archbishop Desmond Tutu when their faith was in fact the driving force behind them changing the world for the good?
1: Brian didn't say that he wanted politicians to tuck their religious views into the bottom drawer while making decisions. I mean, you can still hold a religious view but promote a secular law. The example would be Dan Andrews in Victoria, who uh, is a Christian, but he's got a great track record in recent times of passing very secular laws. So it, it doesn't mean that somebody has to lock away their religious view. It just means they have to take a truly Christian view of the rest of the world and understand that not everybody agrees with their particular faith and accord them um, civility and fairness.
5: Look, uh, the problem here is that other countries, you know, know, the Scandinavian countries don't really find they have a need to prophetise in Parliament. Now, I don't see there's any reason why we can't do the same, but it's not just these, uh, you know, evangelicals Quoting ancient beliefs from the Old Testament about gays and abortion and, and against voluntary euthanasia. It's a way that incites a lot of bitter Christian activism people that demonstrate outside abortion clinics, really incited by a lot of the, the right-wing Christians in Parliament. There was an Ipsos poll that showed that 78% of Australians wanted the full separation of church and states. And within that 78%, there's an awful lot of Christians who want the country to be secular, which are currently we're not. As I say, we are a soft theocracy. And
0: that's Brian Morris, the co-director of the National Secular Lobby. Well, Dr. Renee Barker, do you agree Australia is a soft theocracy, not a secular country?
1: Okay, this is the part of the podcast that really got to me. So Brian Morris was interviewed, that was pre-recorded, and now it's being thrown to the panellists of uh, Renee Barker, Luke Beck and uh, Robert Forsyth to comment on Brian's um, words. And what will happen is he gets straw manned. So they claim that he says things that he didn't, and then they knock down the straw man that they've just erected. So it was an incredibly unfair situation. I don't know if Brian was um, told that his comments would be recorded and that people could comment on them without him having any right of reply, but these panellists take full advantage of being able to read whatever they want to into Brian's statements and then have a little chuckle amongst themselves and a bit of a laugh and ho, 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 he doesn't know anything of what he's talking about, without any chance of Brian responding. I found this to be incredibly unfair, and if ever I was in a situation of recording something with James Carlton, there would have to be a condition that if that is how it's going to be played out, I wouldn't be interested because uh, the way that these words are falsely portrayed and then ridiculed, as you'll hear in the ensuing comments, just made my blood boil. I thought he got an unfair run from James in the questioning and a very unfair run in the way that the panel was allowed to go to town without Brian being able to respond. And unfortunately, uh, Luke wasn't up to the task of supporting Brian.
3: No, I'm not sure he and I were reading the same um, Religious Freedom Review, to be honest. We use the word Australia is secular as if everyone understands we're on the same page. And he quoted a statistic 70-plus percent of Australia want a separation of church and state. And I think, again, it depends what do you mean by that? The um, native Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor outlines multiple different versions of what it means to be secular. So the first, secularism means the complete removal of God from the public sphere, and I think that's what um, Brian Morris means, that you remove it completely, it's not allowed in the public sphere As you would see, say, in France, have we got that sort of secularism in Australia? No. We can all cite examples of our political leaders, our laws, our state institutions having some religious influence. Okay, we've not got that version. The other option is there might be a significant proportion of the population who have no religion, yet the institutions are still nominally religious. We're not quite there yet. We're still over 50% of the population is Christian and well over 50 with a religion. But the third version is that religion and non-religion are just one of many options for the state and its people. Religion is not removed entirely. It is just one voice in the public sphere. It is not privileged.
1: James, feel free to interrupt. I mean, the statement, they're not privileged, but they have all these exemptions when it comes to employment. I mean, you're willing to... Uh, get on to Brian and disagree with him, but Renee just gets a free run when she makes a statement that religion is not privileged. I mean, they don't pay tax. They get status as a charity simply for having a religious purpose. That's not privileged. So where's the interruption? Or at least the hard question.
3: It is not given any special characteristics and nor are non-religious beliefs, atheism, humanism, agnosticism, and the many variants of that. It is one voice among many. And I think that's where we are. We're far from being a soft theocracy.
1: Of course we're a soft theocracy. I mean, we've got religious organisations who pay no tax simply because they're religious. They don't have to prove charitable purpose. We've got Our government's providing billions of dollars to private religious schools to indoctrinate young children before they've got the capacity to understand what they're doing. We've got a school chaplaincy program where we're embedding uh, Christian activists, mostly uh, Christian, into into our state school system and making them available to our most vulnerable children. We're insisting that they be part of a religious group, even though, in theory, they're not supposed to be doing any religious proselytising. We have religious instruction classes in state schools. The opt-in, opt-out nature of that uh, teaching is changing over time, but for a long time it's been the case where children were automatically opted into Bible reading classes in state schools unless their parents ticked the road in a form to opt out. That's slowly changing. But, you know, other countries and evangelists in America look at the chaplaincy program, look at that religious instruction program and wonder at it and, and marvel at it and think how inc- what an incredible opportunity it is to take advantage of young children and indoctrinate them. I mean, that's a sign of a soft theocracy. Uh, we've got religious organisations... Well, we've got the Catholic Church after a royal commission. It just seems to be a cabal of pedophiles, but they and a bunch of other religious organisations are allowed to run not only our schools, but hospitals, nursing homes, employment agencies. The Uniting Church is one of the biggest employers of people in Queensland. You know, we've just had a, a review into religious freedom and we've got Father Frank Brennan on the panel. We'll put a religious person in charge as one of the people in charge. In 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 our media, I mean, the ABC, this program itself of, uh, God forbid, the nature of it is to discuss religion and politics in Australia. Invariably what happens is uh, the discussions are held with the leaders or activists of various religions who are asked to give their view of what they're up to, but hardly ever is a secular or atheist voice invited onto the program to give the view of the non-religious world. So because of the sheer number of different religious groups, they're on every week. But when it comes to what is a huge segment of the Australian population who are actually non-believers, they hardly get a look in on the God Forbid program. You know, this is not the only time this happens on the ABC. When Brian wrote his book, uh, Sacred to Secular, back in 2015, he was looking at uh, religious programs that were running on the ABC. At the time, there were eight of them. Uh, the Spirit of Things, Religion and Ethics Report, Encounter, The Rhythm Divine, Sunday Night, uh, For Who*, *For the God Who Sings, Songs of Praise. Um, like these religious pro-religious programs are just scattered all over the ABC, where is the secular atheist equivalent? Now, you might say, oh, there are programs that have atheists and secularists on them. Well, sure, but they don't have the objective of actually promoting secularism or atheism. It's, these are the reasons why we can you know, run a compelling argument that we've got a soft theocracy happening in Australia and people have got to realise that.
3: Far, fact, far from it.
2: In fact, listening to Mr. Morris, uh, he wants a soft totalitarianism. His argument seems to be this is 2019, therefore, religious people should have no say in anything. They should keep quiet and not be involved in any debate whatsoever. Now, that's an absurd view.
1: All of that from the man who professed to object to straw manning. Give me a break.
2: Let them have their role in the normal political, social issue. Listen to them or don't listen to them. Let's have freedom for them. By the way, he's got a very odd view about Scandinavia. Do you know that in Denmark and Sweden there is a church tax? That, yes. That is collected. In I think Denmark, the government pays more money to the church than gathered by the church tax. It's a very strange situation. They're secular in, in the sense of they don't seem to be very actively religious but they are majority members of the state church and pay money for its services. Things are not quite as simple as they look at a distance.
0: <laughs> look back, what's your vision?
1: <laughs> Things aren't as simple as they seem at a distance brian <laughs> you you foolish man, you have <laughs> you just don't understand, do you? I've actually seen some correspondence from Brian on this one, and uh he actually wrote to Robert Forsyth saying. I had no opportunity to challenge your straw man and to say their nominal Lutherism is wholly immaterial. Sweden and Norway have no state church and most simply opt out of paying a church tax. In Denmark, your chosen example, a small tax is collected for all groups with a nominated philosophical belief, which includes humanism and atheism as well as any religious denomination. Your boast that a majority of are members of the state church and pay money for their services is entirely false. The other point I'd make is uh, in Germany and Austria, the uh, government collects a religion tax from, its, um, uh, from the Catholics, for example, and forwards that on to the Catholic church. The reason that came about was because of a dirty deal done between the Vatican and the Nazis, yes, Hitler, in order to get uh, Catholic support for the Nazi party, it was a deal done, well, we'll collect tax for you, we'll, we'll, we'll put a surcharge on your members and we'll forward that money to you. And that's how that tax uh, um, was enforced in Germany and, and is still around today, but people can opt out of it. So a dirty deal
4: done by the Vatican with uh, the Nazis in Germany. Of secularism. Well, René is right. So the word secularism is one of those words that can mean wildly different things depending on who's using the word. So I think it's better to be a bit more precise rather than use these broad, almost meaningless labels. So And Scott Morrison and Mr Morris there were obviously using the word secular to mean very, very different things. If you have a religious view and that leads to political consequences and you think, you know, you have a religious view and therefore the law should change to reflect X, Y, or Z, of course you should be allowed to express that view and argue your point in in the marketplace of ideas. Same way if somebody has a particular, I don't know, animal liberationist worldview or philosophy, they should be allowed to advocate for their views. You know, it's the marketplace of ideas and the democratic process will sort out who wins and who loses in the ordinary way. That's free speech. But equally, you shouldn't try to impose your religion on other people. And Luke, is that happening in this country? Not to a very great extent, but there are isolated instances where religion is imposed on people, and Parliament is a very good example of this. Every single sitting day starts with an Anglican prayer.
1: Please, the prayer thing, hey, nobody likes it, but it's not the biggest thing in the world. Like let's secularists out there, let's work on the chaplaincy issue as a as a clear one. It stops the um religious groups in their tracks when you talk about the compulsion for a chaplain to be religious. Let's use that as our example in future, please. And in this context, we could have used the compulsion that you are complying with the religious tenets of a particular religion in order to maintain your employment as a teacher. I mean, there's an imposition of some sort of religious um, activity, if you like. It's
0: compulsory. Robert Forsyth, is that anachronistic in the 21st century? Um,
2: It is an historical remembrance of what we, Anglians call the good old days when we were established. Uh, (laughs) If it went, I wouldn't be that unhappy about that. The last thing a a truly religious person wants is to make people religious by some sort of sleight of hand. And how many people actually mean that prayer anyway? Exactly. For me, it's it's a very trivial matter. I'm interested in freedom of religion and freedom to be free from religion. People should have the freedom to renounce religions safely. That's the kind of country we need to
0: be in, a country without fear. So the federal government has supported 15 of the Ruddock Review's 20 recommendations into enhancing religious freedom, but five of the inquiry's recommendations were deferred to the Law Reform Commission for yet another inquiry, which will last until well after the next election. Renee Barker, what are the important of these recommendations and what do you make of their deferral?
3: So the five recommendations primarily relate to exemptions in the various discrimination acts and particularly in relation to schools. For me, the most important of them is the requirement for transparency. And I'm on the record in other places saying that I think transparency in the use of exemptions is really, really important. The key to a lot of the anti-discrimination exemptions is around the Necessary for religious to protect the religious susceptibility of adherents. That's a really fluffy phrase, and unfortunately, in, we can't, probably can't do much better legally. But what it basically means is you can discriminate or have an exemption from the discrimination laws if you need to for religious reasons.
1: And who writes the religious reasons? The religions themselves. And are they fixed and permanent? No, they can make them up whenever they like. So, You can have an exemption for religious reasons which you can dream up at any time yourself effectively. There is no restriction if at your own whim you can come up with your own belief or reason as to why you should not have to comply.
3: The problem, however, is is when you're a third party, you approach that religion for employment or you approach the school for employment or you try to enrol your child you may know nothing about their particular religious susceptibilities. And so people are going in blind. If we're going to continue to allow exemptions, and I would suggest that some are going to continue to be necessary in order to protect freedom of religion.
1: Can we just say special religious privilege rather than freedom of religion?
3: People, I think, have the right to know in advance that these are going to be applied to them. And so the Ruddock review in two of their recommendations in relation to schools, one for staff and contractors and one for students, although the students' ones may become irrelevant, but that the schools have to have a published policy that is available to teachers or to potential staff so that they know whether or not they may face legal discrimination at that school on the basis of a characteristic that they personally have and the nature of how they're going to do that. Did you get that? potential stuff so that they know.
1: That's right, so that they know when they're going to get shafted. In other words, it's okay to discriminate, provided you tell people up front you're going to discriminate against them. That's such BS. I mean, let's go back to the example I gave earlier about discrimination against people because they're black and we decided that wasn't a good idea. Um, you know, does it make it any better if you say to people, I'm not going to employ you as a teacher if you're black? does that somehow excuse it? Does that make it somehow acceptable? If it's a bad practice, the fact that you're telling people you're going to do it doesn't make it any better. It doesn't wash it and make it clean. It's still a bad practice. Simply having a policy for a school to say that we reserve the right to discriminate in future in these circumstances, just because we're going to stab you in the front rather than the back doesn't make it any better.
3: Are these provisions going to be hard to get just right? Yes. And that's why I think referring this very complex area off to Australian law reform commission is a good idea. Bit disappointing that we can't have an answer right now and frustrating for those of us who constantly running submissions to multiple inquiries at the moment. But it's important we get this right. And I think transparency, being aware of what the law says, being aware that it might be applied to you is going to strike at least some kind of balance that we don't currently have.
1: Yes, yeah, so at the moment, gay teachers are stabbed in the back and this way they'll be stabbed in the front. So I guess that is a kind of balance.
3: So a lot of the distress um, in the, after the leaking of the right review was because people went, well, I didn't know that law exists. The right review is saying there should be a new law. I don't want to be discriminated against. What they didn't realise was that law is not new.
1: Exactly. And once they found out, they were appalled. That's the whole point. They didn't know. And when they found out, they were very vocal in saying how horrible it is. That's the whole point.
2: That was an example of the corrupt political process which has surrounded the Ruddock review, which I think has been very unfortunate. I think the whole review itself was, I guess, political to start with, <laughs> but the way it was held back and then leaked, and then the I think disruptable behaviour of the of the press in uh, what was the headline I saw: "Secret plan to throw out gay kids," completely misleading, led to a kind of moral panic. Then led to a, the ALP...
1: Oh, please! The leaking of the report the parts that were leaked, the leaks were accurate. They stated what was coming down the track and people didn't like it. That wasn't disreputable behaviour. That was just good journalism. And the only moral panic was the panic felt by the religious schools who realised that their special privilege was potentially going to be wiped away by the public uproar.
2: Rapidly calling to repeal the very law they themselves had enacted in 2014 in haste. And the danger is, even with the one about students, that there may be unintended consequences. <laughs> so I'm very sorry that the way it's been handled, I think, will lead ultimately to almost no, no good outcomes. I'm, I'm quite pessimistic about the situation, even though i with you, Renee, I think that greater transparency is what should be owed by those b- bodies and institutions who have the privilege of Selecting their own people, certain ways that others don't have, they should be upfront about it. I mean, I am in favour of that, but that got lost in the debate.
3: I would agree with you. The leaking and reporting was in such a way that immediately the whole Ruddock review has now been tainted with this negativity around yep. these particular issues.
1: It wasn't the leaking that made them negative. It wasn't the reporting that made them negative. The The reporting and the leaks were accurate. It was the content of what was being proposed that was negative because it was a terrible thing to propose.
3: Which I think is going to strip it of some of its force and some of its um, potential to really fine tune and tweak Australia's freedom of religion so that we can be a world leader.
2: What I would love to see is genuine bipartisanship and compromise. So this isn't a political issue but just one we put to bed well. And that's that's what I fear that we've now
0: lost the chance to having. So in conclusion, Luke Beck, should organisations and families and individuals be free to hold and live by their own moral and religious values, especially when the majority might find those values
1: immoral? If you've been listening carefully, you should be attuned to the difference between holding a belief and living a belief and unfortunately of course that distinction is not grappled with
4: yes provided you're not hurting anybody else absolutely and where is that line well that line there there are easy cases where if your religious beliefs require you to for example engage in you know physical harm to other people well then that's obviously not on the wrong side of the line, then you get issues in the grey area where there is controversy, such as should the bakery be allowed to send away a gay couple because the the baker has a religious objection to same-sex marriage and refused to make the gay wedding cake? My view on those sorts of issues is that if you operate in the marketplace and you open your business to the public, you should comply with all the ordinary public norms and anti-discrimination rules.
1: But actually earlier, Luke, you were prepared to give a free pass to schools if we weren't funding them. And we don't fund cake shops. So here's the problem with that whole uh, funding as a reason model is, well, with a cake shop, we don't provide any government funding. Maybe they should be able to discriminate however they like. It doesn't work, you see. It, it, the point is, it's it's not about whether they're funded or not by the... Public sector. That just adds salt into the wound. Is it right or wrong?
2: Robert Forsyth. Uh, on the whole, I'm one I'm, I'm with Luke on this, I think. Uh, really? Surprisingly.
0: Well, then, what about, say, the example of Qantas, Robert Forsyth, where the chief executive explained to his staff that the organisation has a very pro same sex marriage position? Uh, I find that thing. I hate, I'm very frustrated by that
2: kind of virtue behaviour by these companies. But it shouldn't be against the law. That's my point. They should, If they're to make a fools of themselves or sniff the zeitgeist and think they can make money out of it, they should be free to do so. But not hire and fire on that basis. No, not hire and fire on that basis.
1: Because only religious groups can discriminate when it comes to hiring and firing. Renee Barker.
3: I think what's good for the goose has to be good for the gander in this situation. The moment people can be hired and fired, depending on which state they live in, on the basis of their religion. That shouldn't be permitted. But similarly, we should not permit religious organisations to discriminate beyond what is necessary for their religious beliefs. And if they have a religious belief that requires them to discriminate, and I say require, then that should be transparent.
0: Up next, we test great minds with wits end the God forbid quiz.
5: And
1: they then go on to have a little quiz about uh, religious issues and you can listen to their podcast directly and get that if you're interested. But there's one other point I want to make that, of course, didn't come up in this uh, discussion and that's when you're looking at the recommendations from the Ruddock Review. What they've said is, uh, with schools in relation to uh, students and teachers, is that there's a blanket ban on discriminating against teachers and students on the basis of race, disability, pregnancy or intersex status. So absolutely no discrimination against those groups. But there's another group where they say sometimes discrimination will be allowed in relation to sexual orientation, gender identity or relationship status. So the interesting thing here is that the uh, the sort of characteristics that somebody might have, uh, race, disability, pregnancy or intersex status, um, intersex is where a person's uh, sexual uh, identity physically is hard to determine because of chromosomal issues or the like. So they're saying for those people, no way can ever discriminate. But... For people in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity, yes, sometimes discrimination is allowed. And the interesting thing that I think in this is that it's a, a statement that sexual orientation and gender identity, in their view, are things of a matter of choice. I see them as of having been removed from uh, the other category uh, f- because of that perception by the writers of the Ruddock Report that people's sexual orientation and gender identity are not fixed. Uh, they're there by choice. And, of course, they're wrong in that. We all know that. And I can't see any comments in the media picking up on that. So it's it's a major flaw in this report that for some bizarre reason you can you can't discriminate based on race, disability, pregnancy or intersex status, but you can in certain circumstances based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And I think it can only come down to this view that that's a matter of a lifestyle choice, as Tony Abbott might say. And that's something I'd like to see other people pick up on. So so I feel better. I've got that off my chest. I hope that gives some ideas of some arguments that can be made for other people who who might be on panels like this. And I really encourage um, any secularists – I mean, I know you've got to be diplomatic to a point, but uh, somebody like the late, great Christopher Hinchins would just tell it as it is. And uh, at different times, the the theists are are more than willing to stick the boot in and – we as people promoting secular ideals should be prepared to use some blunt, honest, direct language and just say the obvious that, yes, there are circumstances where you just can't have your school, you shouldn't have your funding, the world is changing. And I recognise that groups like the National Secular Lobby and perhaps others like the Rationalists or whatever – have to maintain a diplomatic line in order to, you know, potentially get invites onto shows like this. I'm never going to get one, let's face it. But there is a place, like I know, just briefly diverting, you know, in, say, America at the moment with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's coming out now and saying, you know, there should be a tax rate of 70%. So you need some voices who are strong on one side to rebalance the arguments. And, you know, maybe they will now meet at the 50% mark, but you need somebody giving the the, the strong line in opposition. And that's what I've tried to do on this, is, is to try and reset where the middle might be, if you like. I mean, I firmly believe everything I've just said in terms of what should be happening, but I fully acknowledge that many people think I'm just playing crazy. But uh, if we can get some conversations happening... Um, on what might be a far left sort of view of the whole religious privilege debate um, i think it might make things easier for groups who are plying a more diplomatic line so anyway that's uh that's the end of the podcast if you've first time you listen to my podcast please go and look at the um previous episodes 185 186 etc to get to get an idea of Of what we do we've been doing for three years we talk about news and politics and what's going on in the world if there's a chance to bag religion we will take it um and i think we produce a pretty good program for um a little part-time sort of hobby so anyway if you've made it this far congratulations and we'll resume normal programming next week bye well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast